Today's episode is on police community relations. Some of the stories and audio may be sensitive to listeners, including the upcoming recording of a police altercation that happened right here in Milwaukee earlier this year. Recordings like this are common in the media today. In it, you hear Sterling Brown, a professional NBA player for the Milwaukee Bucks, getting tased by Milwaukee police officers after a confrontation with Brown over illegally parking in a Walgreens parking lot. It's also an example of how police and their relationships with residents are now scrutinized at a new level. With body cameras a part of the police uniform and smartphones in everyone's pocket, the questions and challenges around police community relations are at the forefront of people's minds. Today on Bridge the City, we begin a multi-part series on police community relations, where we will talk to community residents, nonprofit leaders, a former police officer, and the district attorney's office to get a better understanding of what police community relations are like in Milwaukee, and how various community leaders are working to improve them. My name is Kyle Hagee. I'm Benjamin Rangel. And I'm Sam Woods. In our first episode, we take a step back to understand the foundational principles of policing the challenges that police face, and why the department cannot always simply fire officers involved in cases like Sterling Brown's. We begin with Dr. Kimberly Hassel from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, who specializes on police community relations. My name is Kimberly Hassel, and I'm an associate professor of criminal justice at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And what brought you to this current position, and what was the origins of your interest in the criminal justice system? You know, when I was a graduate student, I worked as a research assistant for Ed McGuire, Dr. Ed McGuire, and he had this uh, community policing project, this huge project. And I actually thought I wanted to study corrections, but he did policing, right, Mm -hmm. community-oriented policing. And so I did a ride-along in Council Bluffs, Iowa, my first ride-along, fell in love fell in love with policing, have been studying policing ever since. And what is important for us to know about police community relations? So there are a few things. The first is that police community relations is a social issue. So it's not a police issue. It's not a community issue. It's a social issue. And to improve police community relations, we all have to make the effort. A lot of times we think that strained police community relations is the sole responsibility of the police. It's not. It's a social issue that requires a social response. When the first modern police department was created in 1829 in London, the London Metropolitan Police Department, the underlying assumption of policing as outlined by Sir Robert Peel is that the police are the public and the public are the police. And every criminal justice student understands that, right? Sir Robert Peel went a little further in his seventh principle, and he says, The police at all times should maintain a relationship with the public that gives reality to the historic tradition that the police are the public and the public are the police. The police are the only members of the public who are paid to give full-time attention to duties which are incumbent on every citizen in the intent of community welfare. Incumbent. It's an obligation, right? We have an obligation to our society. So what this means is that we're all responsible for maintaining order within our communities and to do it effectively, efficiently, and even equitably, we all have to work together. To do that, we need relationships. So the community is the first line of defense in combating crime. Controlling crime is not only a police issue, it's a social issue for which we're all responsible. It's unfair and unrealistic, actually, to expect the police to bear full responsibility for crime. 
What members of the public need to know is that the police need community support, cooperation, and involvement to be effective. So to impact crime, police need public support, cooperation, and involvement, and that requires relationships. What can the police do to try to improve uh, police-community relations? Research shows that police can improve their relationships with, with members of the public when they act in a procedurally just manner. In fact, the primary antecedent of police legitimacy is procedural justice, or perceptions thereof. What this means is that the police can improve perceptions of police legitimacy by exhibiting one, fairness, impartiality, and neutrality in decision-making, two, transparency in actions, effective communication, three, respect for persons with whom they are interacting, treating people with dignity and respect, four, benevolence and sincere concern for doing the right thing. Again, what is considered to be procedurally just is subjective. We all have our own ideas, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a baseline. And to me, a baseline is what I've always been taught to be the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Treat others how you want to be treated. Absolutely. Put yourself figuratively in someone else's position and then treat that person the way you would want to be treated. This is a baseline for how we should all be treating each other, regardless of economic situation, race, ethnicity, sex, sexual orientation, gender, occupation, religious beliefs, the communities in which people reside, immigration status, and so on and so on. So police need to treat us in a procedurally just manner, but we also need to treat the police in a procedurally just manner. As human beings, we are reactive. We react. When we disrespect the police, they react. When the police disrespect us, we react. Guess what? If we all treated each other in a procedurally just manner, think about how much better things would be. The empirical research on procedural justice is overwhelming and consistent. Police can change the way people perceive the police and interact with police just by how they speak with and treat people. When police treat people in a procedurally just manner, people have more positive perceptions of police and are more willing to cooperate with police. They are also more likely to obey the law, and this is fascinating. So Tom Tyler did research on police legitimacy, and he wanted to figure out why do people obey the law. Typically, we think, why are people breaking the law? So he says, why do people obey the law? He found people obey the law when they believe it to be procedurally just. Less concerned with the substantive aspects of law. What is a crime, right? What is not? What you can and can't do. Concerned about procedural aspects of law. And there's a lot of subsequent research supporting and confirming Tyler's conclusions. Police behavior impacts whether people obey the law. That's huge. So, to improve police-community relations, we should all be treating each other in a procedurally just manner, treating people the way we would want to be treated if we were in that same situation. To do this, we can improve police-community relations, we can also reduce crime. Again, we have to understand, though, police-community relations, our ability to control crime, it's a social issue for which we are all socially responsible. So now that we've heard a little bit about the history and foundational principles of policing, we also asked Dr. Hassel a few more questions about the theory behind police-community relations, starting with the question, does diversity in a police force affect policing outcomes? Research shows that regardless of officer race, officer sex, there's no difference in police practices, arrests, anything of that nature. Um, we certainly want our police department to be representative of the community, so that's important and that's a perception issue. But I, I also think that is complex because I've had residents, not in, I mean police officers, not in Milwaukee and other police departments say, you know what, I, I grew up in this community, I became a police officer, I got assigned back to the community where I was raised and I wasn't accepted. People were hostile. They weren't compliant. 
So I, I think it's just a really complex issue. Yeah. I really like the concept of why do people obey the law? That's like that's interesting that I think you're right on. Like people often think of why do people break the law? But well, like, why do I wake up <laughs> most of the days and be like, I'm going to obey the law. And I think the concept of procedural justice is one that's certainly new to me. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah. And the other thing we have to understand is that police, police represent government, mm-hmm. right? The most frequent way you were going to have direct physical interaction with your government. Yeah. Public schools. Sorry, Marquette. Public schools, right? <laughs> the second most frequent way people, you and I, are going to have direct physical interaction with our government, yeah. police. Uh-huh. Police interaction. So what the police do, the implications are huge. Yeah. Right? We, I take a I just took an urban politics class last semester and there was a whole week on uh how critical people's like first uh, interactions with government can be or kind of the pattern of interactions they have with their government. Um, and that was a big focus of like a lot of people, police is the government. And if they're having negative interactions with police consistently, that taints their view of government, that decreases their political participation, their civic participation. So it can have really uh, big ripple effects out just from simple daily interactions. Right. They're also symbolic figures representing government. So for mm-hmm. people who believe they are being oppressed, right, mm-hmm. the police represent government. You see them in a uniform, right? You can point them out. We've seen ambushes lately, ambush attacks on police increasing, right? What do you see with respect to government lately? Not just police, but government, right? Mm -hmm. Distrust and anger and resentment. There you go. Symbolic figures. Well, Bridges City hopes to give people a better perspective on the government and of civic (laughs) engagement. So I'm curious what what you think the media's role in um, this concept? Absolutely. Media is where we get our information. Los Angeles riots. First time we capture police brutality on camera, right? What happens in Los Angeles following the acquittal of the three officers and the police sergeant who beat Rodney King? What happened? The city erupted. Yeah, it erupted, yeah. right? People, Procedural justice. Yeah, people didn't think justice was served. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But were the riots contained to only Los Angeles? They weren't. We saw protests and riots in other places as well. Why? Same thing we see now. What one police officer does in one police department not only impacts that department, but the institution of policing, the entire institution. When we see stories like that on the news, what do we think? People in general, what do we think? Do we think, wow, that's one bad police officer in one police department? 18,769 municipal police department or police departments, right? Is that what we think? And I'm going to put it bluntly. People say the police suck. Government sucks. That's what people say. That's the conclusion. The connection Dr. Hassel makes in referring to police officers as symbolic figures of government is important and highlights the ripple effects that good or bad police community relations has on the rest of our civic lives. It also highlights the immense symbolic pressure on individual police officers to be excellent in every interaction they have, as they have a huge influence on what the community thinks of government as a whole. Next, we want to reshare a story from the future county sheriff, Ernell Lucas, whom we interviewed a couple months ago. Here, he tells us how not only do individual police officers face immense symbolic pressure to be excellent ambassadors of government, but they often do so in the face of serious physical threat. 
Well, I, I tell you, it was quite an experience for me. In 1979 is when I completed my time as a cadet, went to the academy for 23 weeks. Now you come out and become a patrol officer. And I was assigned to the um, uh, uh, Lower East Side of Milwaukee, very affluent area, uh, area heretofore not um, policed by uh, someone that looks like me. Um, if you recall, um, Milwaukee had a chief here who keep, kept officers of color on the north side and uh, kept the south side strictly uh, for uh, white officers to control. So to be assigned to the uh, uh, an affluent area on the east side, I encountered some, some some things in life I was just sharing with, with some members of my team. You know, recall going to a home where you know, when we knocked at the door and uh, we sensed that somebody had to be at home, but we weren't getting an answer at the door. And so as I was making my way to the back door, uh, uh, the caller opened the door and told my partner that he could come in, but that I couldn't come the front door. And so it was an experience that was like, wow, this is 1979, 80. And you would think that you know, times have changed, but still there was a period there. But, you know, still my faith in people, my faith in uh, this profession, and my faith in, in my abilities to work through differences, through different uh, races, through different uh, socioeconomic uh, perspectives uh, kept me, you know, wanting to still serve and do this profession. I... Uh, in 1982, I was at a call on a New Year's Day uh, for a disturbance early in the morning, New Year's Day, and a uh, woman complainant meets us uh, at the door and tells us that her neighbor is, is in a housing complex on the uh, north side. She tells us that the neighbor is making noise in, in the lower unit, uh, to which we could hear a television and maybe some type of an exhaust fan at best through the door from where we were standing. And so uh, we took the information from the caller and she went, uh, told her to uh, us go back up the stairs and go to her apartment. And uh, we began knocking on the door um, and having a dialogue with the, uh, with the gentleman. And we were having a fairly good dialogue. Hey, this is the police. Open the door. We want to talk to you. No, 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 no. Go away. Go away. Go away. Hey, we need to talk to you and everything like that. And in the process of trying to have a dialogue with the gentleman, you could hear him knocking over things, uh, glass shattering and other things. And after maybe several minutes of this, uh, we lost all dialogue with the gentleman. So now my instinct for his concern um, kicked in. And so made a decision to go have a manager come open the door. Um, so we could check on his well-being. And we did just that. When we got the manager, brought her over, opened the door, and when we opened the door, we saw uh, the individual barricaded in the floor with a 12-gauge shotgun pointed at the door. And so now it was a question of how do my partner and I get out of this common hallway and um, get to safety. We started calling for additional help. It's a New Year's Day, 10 inches of snow, cold, one of the coldest days on record. And um, so I basically had to jump across the threshold of the door, kick open the door, and um, take a position behind the door that I could get a, a view of uh, the individual seated in the floor, while at the same time um, getting my partner to come out, and he was more um, behind a secure position behind uh, the uh, concrete uh, side of the, uh, the building. We called for additional help, waiting for additional help. And in the process, 
uh, of still trying to get the individual to put the uh, the, the weapon down, the, the complainant began coming down the stairs again, at which point I, I gave up my position and said, lady, don't come down the stairs. And I don't know if I got all of those words out. Uh, that was my intent. But uh, in that process, the individual fired one round that struck me in my right temple. I still have pellets all on the right side of my face uh, uh, from the blast. Um, the glasses that I was wearing on that New Year's Day, they found in the snow um, uh, with the lens, right lens shattered out. Got pellets embedded all in the orbital bone here and suffer from a little uh, issue with my TMJ that resulted from the severing of um, my tendons on the right side of my face. But um, at a time when we didn't have a limited duty program and at a time when I um, had a two-week-old daughter and a two-year-old son, I knew that, you know, if the Lord was going to allow me to live, um, that I was going to get back up and get back out. And after six months of rehabilitation and recuperation, I did just that, guys. Um, now, to put it in context, my incident on December 23rd, 1981, two Milwaukee police officers are driving down King Drive. When they get to Lloyd Street, they see an individual run from what was then Alfred's House Suburban. Moments later, followed by several, uh, uh, several patrons who saw the squad coming north on King Drive and told the officers that he had just held up the, uh, uh, the tavern. Uh, the individual ran into an alley, um, and the officers uh, began in pursuit of the, uh, the individual. Boom, boom, he shoots uh, those two officers. New Year's Day, 1982, I'm in, at a disturbance on uh, 10th and Walnut and um, shot by an individual. Um, and then on the 30th of January, 1982, an officer is serving a, uh, a non-felony warrant on uh, Hopkins and Burleigh at a pool hall when an individual pulls out a uh, weapon, strikes an officer once in his collarbone. In the course of about 40 days, uh, you had uh, four Milwaukee police officers shot. And I'm the lone survivor of that difficult period uh, in the history of the police department. When you put it into context, obviously, we just had a very difficult period we're going through now with the loss of life of two officers, uh, one through a vehicle uh, crash and the other through uh, a senseless uh, gun violence. But um, other than that, the highest uh, loss of life um, ever recorded in the uh, history of uh, policing prior to 9-11 was the 1917 bombing, not too far from where we are here in the Third Ward, where a citizen found a package and took it to the police station. And when uh, an officer went to move it, um, it detonated and killed nine officers and two citizens. That, prior to the attacks of 9-11, was the largest loss of life in law enforcement on one single day. So it was a difficult period, but you asked the question about what did I learn? At the end of the day, um, if you're committed to this profession, um, you, 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 you want to go out there with the attitude of serving and protecting people. I knew that despite my injuries, if I could overcome my injuries, um, I, I wanted to get back out there and serve this community. And um, it's guided me through my 25 year career. So while Ernell talked about a specific instance of violence he faced quite some time ago, the threat of violence is still present. Just this summer, two officers were killed in the line of duty. 
While we're not seeing the surge of violence against officers that Ernell saw in the early 1980s, the threat of violence and death on the job is still a very real possibility. With this in mind, we return to the case of Sterling Brown, the Bucks player who you heard being tased at the beginning of the episode. This was not a case of violence against a police officer, but rather a case of excessive use of force by an MPD officer on a non-violent Milwaukee resident. This, and other instances like it, have contributed, perhaps more than any other single factor, to the deterioration of police community relations in Milwaukee. We went to a public town hall meeting in September hosted by MPD, where Assistant Chief Raymond Banks spoke about why it took almost eight months to fire the officer involved in the Sterling Brown case. At the same town hall meeting, Assistant Chief Banks addressed many other concerns, such as whether or not the department imposes quotas on the number of traffic stops each officer must make. Police administration, part of the evaluation measures were how many traffic stops and building the things that you did. I can tell you that this administration does not and will not use those type of measurements as to judge how well an officer is doing his job. This is a very recent change in department policy, according to Assistant Chief Banks, the one that has been advocated for by many for quite some time. Banks also addressed why the current system makes it difficult to fire officers who do use excessive force, such as the officer involved in the Sterling Brown case. How will the community ever be trusting of MPD when the same officers who commit crimes against blacks and other minorities are still working in the department? Difficult question. You take the question at face value, someone commits a crime, or take that to the district attorney's office. The district attorney makes the decision as to whether or not there's going to be prosecution. If someone breaks a rule, then it's up to the administration to decide what that discipline is going to be. And quite honestly, a lot of the discipline that comes out of the police department is made around uh, 
rules that are in place, uh, agreements with the union, contractual agreements, and things of that nature. Sometimes it hinders the progression of discipline. Not something that uh, a lot of people in the community like to hear, because sometimes when you see some of the misbehaviors that happen, people want officers fired. It's not just that simple. There's a process that's in place to try to follow the process. Case in point, the Sterling Brown fire that we were talking about earlier. The officer that was fired in that was not fired for the incident necessarily with Sterling Brown, but was fired for the postings that he put on Facebook that were racially insensitive. And provided us with an opportunity to go a different direction with that. However, when officers do misbehave, just know that this administration is taking those things very seriously. But sometimes there are things and rules that are in place that really hinder our progression in making things happen in the community we like to see. Thank you for listening to Bridge the City. The issues and challenges around police community relations in Milwaukee and nationally are complex. Today we hope you came away with a better understanding of the foundational principles of policing as well as the unique and often dangerous challenges that police officers face. In part two, we'll dive into the ramifications of a recent settlement on a racial profiling lawsuit brought against the Milwaukee Police Department by the ACLU of Wisconsin, and hear what community members think of when they hear the words, the police. Here's a clip from this upcoming episode. So I believe that anybody that's in this generation that watches the news is a product of police brutality because you're seeing all of these things and if you are African American or if you are brown skin or whatever, if you are a different ethnicity, you see a whole bunch of Caucasian um, police officers or white police officers, whatever you want to call it, um, brutalizing um, brown people. And when you see that and you're a brown person, um, then that makes you um, afraid, that makes you insecure. Instead of looking at law enforcement like they are going to be there to help you or be there to um, comfort you or be there to enforce and help different things, you don't look at them like that anymore. You look at them as being an anim enemy. Big thank yous to Dr. Kimberly Hassel with the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, soon-to-be County Sheriff Ernell Lucas, and Assistant Chief Banks for their contribution today. An even bigger thank you to all of you for listening, but please, please, please stay tuned for our next part of this three-part series. It's definitely going to be worth listening to. This episode was produced by me, Benjamin Rangel. Me, Kyle Hagee. And Sam Woods promotional support from ashley benson and it was sponsored by no one yet not yet at that's least. right but we're looking for sponsors so if you know any uh who are willing to support a community-centered podcast please reach yeah, out to we us. need our own medici family <laughs> exactly if you enjoyed this episode please rate and review on itunes as this helps others discover the podcast but most importantly let us know how you are helping bridge, bridge the city, city. the city, the city.